0: Hello, and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 17, the Iber. Here we are, finally. Hannibal is now in control. He is the commander in Spain. It is 221 BC. In a few short years, we will be at war. Hannibal will attack the town of Saguntum. Saguntum will ask for help from its ally, Rome. Rome will not respond, and will instead get involved in a war in the east. After many months, Saguntum will fall. Rome will be caught off guard, and tell Hannibal he broke the Iber Treaty. Hannibal will say he did not. Rome will appeal to Carthage, and give them an ultimatum. Carthage will choose war. Hannibal will invade Italy. That, in a nutcase, is what happens over the next few years. Those of you familiar with my podcasting style will know I greatly enjoy getting into the detail of things. And we shall in this episode now we know the basics, get into the real detail of the matter. Did Hannibal break the Iber Treaty? Some of you may have noticed I changed the name of this river between the last episode and this one. This is because Iber is the name of the river used in the ancient world. It was the Iber that the treaty was based on. The Carthaginian troops carthaginian troops shall not cross the ebre in modern spain there is no river called the Eber, but it is generally assumed that the ebre is the modern river ebro but it could also be the river jacar oh yes we are going to get that detailed about this but Before we get into Hannibal attacking Saguntum, let's see what he did as commander before that. This is exciting! Hannibal is actually doing things. In my history of Hannibal, Hannibal is doing things. About time too, now that I think about it. We are 17 episodes in. Anyway, Hannibal, Spain. Let's go. Except not really, because we have, drum roll please, Livy. <laughs> While Polybius is a good historian, I am incredibly happy to be able to crack open my copy of Livy, as Livy is a fantastic writer. I'm going to quote a bit of Livy, Book 21, Chapter 4. In this section, Livy gives a description of Hannibal, which will be very good for us as he is now entering our narrative for the first time. Power to command and readiness to obey are rare associates. But in Hannibal, they were perfectly united, and their union made him as much valued by his commander as by his men. Hasdrubal preferred him to all other officers in any action, which called for vigour and courage. And under his leadership, the men invariably showed, to the best advantage, both dash and confidence. Reckless in courting danger, he showed superb tactical ability, once it was upon him. Indefatigable, both physically and mentally, he could endure with equal ease excessive heat or excessive cold. He ate and drank not to flatter his appetites, but only so much as would sustain his bodily strength. His time for walking, like his time for sleeping, was never determined by daylight or darkness. When his work was done, then, and then only, he rested, without need, moreover, of silence or a soft bed to woo sleep to his eyes. Often, he was seen lying on his cloak on the bare ground amongst the common soldiers on sentry or picket duty. His accoutrement, like the horses he rode, was always conspicuous, but not his clothes, which were like those of any other officer of his rank and standing. Mounted or unmounted, he was unequalled as a fighting man, always the first to attack, the last to leave the field. So much for his virtues, and they were great, but no less great were his faults. Inhuman cruelty, a more than punic perfidy, A total disregard of truth, honour and religion, of the sanctity of an oath, of all that other men hold sacred. Such was the complex character of the man who for three years served under Hestribal's command, doing and seeing everything which could help him to equip him as a great military leader. See, I told you that he was good. Well, what can we learn from that? Hannibal, like many great soldier leaders such as Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, was loved by his troops. He shared in their hardships. He did not ask them to do anything he wouldn't do. He led by example. He was really quite an awesome guy. Though, as Livy points out, a man with faults. Some of these faults, such as a total disregard of truth, are not too surprising. Maybe it's just because I can be incredibly cynical, but I am quite sure I am being lied to by politicians all the time. I'm sure they tell lies to each other to get what they want. I'm sure backstabbings happen all the time in diplomacy. Therefore, I'm not too surprised that Hannibal does it. You should be aware of some of the issues with Livy's history. It is moralising. He wrote it, at least partly, to instruct future generations on how to live their lives. It wasn't a history in the modern sense. The other thing to take into account is stereotypes. These are true about Polybius as well. There was in Rome and Greece a belief that temperature affected the consistency of the blood. In colder climates, the blood was thicker. In warmer climates, the blood was thinner. Thick blood resulted in the person being strong, but stupid. And thin blood resulted in the person being clever but also crafty and intriguing. The area in the Earth that resulted in the perfect blood was Greece. Later, in the Imperial period, the Mediterranean was the area with perfect blood. It's all basic science, really. If you weren't taught this at school, I feel very sorry for you. You're probably also told some nonsense about the world being round as well. When will people learn? Yes, anyway, this, um fact has something to do with the phrase. A more than Punic periphery. Right, so, this is the man, Hannibal. But just what was he doing in Spain? Hannibal set about conquest. He attacked the Olcades, which was firmly within the Carthaginian sphere of influence. It was a successful campaign, and he wintered in New Carthage. In the spring of 220, he advanced against the Vicai, taking the towns of Hermandica, and Arbacala, before he managed to defeat a force of fugitives of these two peoples. This was a large force, though I doubt it matched the figure of 100,000, given to us by Polybius and Livy. Ancient sources do like to over-exaggerate the sizes of armies. Now, Hannibal controlled all the territory south Of the Iber, with the possible exception of Saguntum. Saguntum was terrified of what Hannibal was doing and sent many embassies to Rome asking for help, while Hannibal wintered once again in New Carthage. The Romans were finally persuaded to send an embassy to Spain. One suspects that Rome's ally, Massilia, had something to do with it. They feared Hannibal's encroachment on their Spanish colonies. At New Carthage, Hannibal found the Roman embassy waiting for him. They basically issued him an ultimatum. They reminded him not to cross the Iber, and not to attack Saguntum. Hannibal said that he would act in the best interests of the Saguntines. The Roman embassy wound up at Saguntum to arbitrate some civil strife. Hannibal accused them of putting leading Saguntine citizens to death. Carthage would avenge them and help out the abused people of Saguntum. A message was sent to Carthage asking for further instructions, though Hannibal made up a series of excuses. Rome decided war was inevitable. Delegates were sent to Carthage to complain there. It was decided, at the same time, to secure the Roman position in Illyria. In 219, the Roman legions were sent there to make sure that the situation was under control. This plan backfired, when reports got to Rome that Hannibal had attacked Saguntum. The Second Illyrian War was ended quite quickly, and Rome determined to declare war on Carthage. There would be no debate. Ambassadors were sent to Carthage in 218, not before March, but possibly as late as June. When reports were reaching Rome that Hannibal was on the move north, the Carthaginians were offered two alternatives, either surrender Hannibal and his council, or war. The Carthaginian Senate said that they would not debate the matter with Rome. They said that the Treaty had never been made, and even if it had been made, it had not been ratified by them. A similar defence to one made by the Romans for being aggressors in the First Punic War, though Rome did indeed not break a treaty when starting that particular war. Even if the Carthaginians were to acknowledge that the Iber Treaty was valid, Saguntum was not allied with Rome at the time of the agreement. To rub it in the Romans' faces, the agreement, which wasn't even valid anyway, was read aloud several times, just to make sure that Saguntum wasn't in there. It wasn't. The Romans refused to discuss the Carthaginian justification, but demanded that as the city had been taken, Carthage must turn over Hannibal. If Hannibal had not attacked, then they could discuss the matter, but this was out of the question. If Carthage refused to this, there must be war. The senior member of the Roman delegation said that the senators had two choices, peace or war. He would go along with whatever they instructed. The Carthaginian suffet, which you'll remember was the Carthaginian equivalent of the consul, said that he should choose whichever He thought best. The envoy replied war, and the Carthaginian senators at once shouted, We accept it. Well, that is the version of events in Polybius, anyway. Livy offers a slightly different account, with Hannibal much more aggressive. In this version, it is implied Hannibal launches his attack against Saguntum, before the Roman envoys reached Spain. This is representative of different opinions between the two sources. Polybius has Hannibal seeing himself having to go to war with Segunsum eventually, but trying to delay it. In Livy, Hannibal cannot wait to attack Saguntum; He is desperate for war with Rome. Which of these views is true? There is no way to be certain, as unfortunately I do not possess a time machine. But here is what I think has happened. There is a strong anti bacchid tradition, which we have spoken about. This will have grown stronger over time, as this tradition becomes mixed in with the historiographical tradition. This would naturally lead to sources further from events being harsher to Hannibal. Polybius is writing about a 100 years or so after events, Livy a bit over 200. This would explain Livy's view of Hannibal. This all rests on the question of, was Hannibal seeking war with Rome? It is a possibility he saw that as a long-term goal, which is kind of in agreement with Polybius. But given Punic focus in the south of the country, and Hannibal's continuation of this policy, is there really any reason to impose a policy on him other than expanding Punic influence in Spain? He was clearly not ready for war with Rome. There are a whole host of reasons why Carthage lost the war, which could have been fixed if Hannibal had more time to prepare. So, if he wanted war, the smart ploy would be to wait. Even something as basic as securing a route to Italy, he did not have prepared. No alliances or supply routes were ready. Hannibal was clearly not a fool, so why would he seek war when he was so unprepared? The solution is simple. He wasn't seeking war. So, just how did this war happen? A lot of it depends on the Iber Treaty. This could refer to one of two rivers, the Ebro or the Hyukkah. If the Ebro was the river meant in the treaty, then Saguntum was within Carthage's sphere of influence. If the treaty was the Hycar, then Carthage would be breaking the treaty by attacking. If the river was the Hycar, then Hannibal was indeed the aggressor, rendering my arguments incorrect, and it makes Rome a victim. I mention this as it is an option. But there is the possibility that the Ebro is the river mentioned. If so, Hannibal had every right to be campaigning where he was, though there was Rome's alliance with Saguntum. A colony of Rome's ally, Massilia, who was a major reason in getting Rome's attention towards Spain, given her importance in facing the Gauls. The Ebro is the river usually agreed by scholars, as the river meant in the treaty, so let's assume that it is. Hannibal is campaigning near Saguntum, but not attacking it. The people in Saguntum are highly worried by this, and request help from Rome. In the winter of 220-219, Rome sends diplomats to Hannibal, warning him not to attack Saguntum. In his book, Rome Against Carthage, which I highly recommend, Dory points out Hannibal now, realistically, has two options. One, accept the Roman ultimatum, or two, don't. What happens if he accepts the ultimatum? It gives Rome confidence. It reduces the prestige of both himself and Carthage. What happens next? Rome sends troops to safeguard Saguntum. The Spanish tribes abandon Hannibal and go side with Rome. Suddenly, 20 years of work in Spain is down the toilet. This could not happen. Hannibal didn't want to see Carthage humiliated again by the Romans. By issuing an ultimatum, Hannibal was forced into attacking Saguntum quickly, before Rome could do anything about it. They may, after all, be a chance that Rome was just bluffing. The Second Illyrian War could well be preparation for the coming war with Hannibal, securing the flank. But does a power, about to enter the biggest war of its existence... Really throw itself into a war in Greece? Yes, Hannibal. We are very serious. Don't attack Sconsum. But having just issued this threat, we're going to send our armies in the opposite direction. So yes, while they are in Greece, don't attack Scunsem. Because we will attack you. We promise. You can really understand why Hannibal may have felt the Romans were bluffing. Their refusal to help Saguntum must have reinforced this view, once he actually did. Rome didn't realise how quickly Saguntum could fall, given how well Lillabym had held out in the First Punic War. The Second Punic War is a war that needn't have happened, at least not yet. Neither side was ready. But Hannibal did attack Saguntum, and the war was now on. If you like the show, why not visit us in all the usual places online The History of Facebook.com forward slash history of podcast Twitter.com forward slash the history of pod forward slash the history of podcast the history of podcast at gmail and The History Podcasts Facebook group. Please get in touch if you want to make comments, give some feedback on the style of the show, some feedback on the Project History Cage Match. Do you want to ask a question about the show? About the ancient world? Though I am quite happy to reply to most questions about most things. Now, 2012 is coming to a close. You all know what this means. For the next week, voting is open to nominate a show for the 2012 Podcast Awards. To nominate a podcast, go to podcastawards.com and fill in the form there. I know there are a great number of brilliant history podcasts out there, but if you wanted to nominate this show for the education category... I would be eternally grateful. You can only nominate once. So, if you're looking for ideas about other categories, I would recommend you nominate The Complete Guide to Everything for Comedy and The Rooster Teeth Podcast for Gaming. They are both shows I listen to and ones I greatly enjoy. So, if you're looking for something to do on the internet to take up time that could be spent more productively, but less enjoyably. Here is my suggestion for this week. Podcastawards.com. Go check that out. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, Mike Koning for the drumroll, Yannick Lemieux for the crowd sound, and thanks to you for listening. I'm afraid there will be no episode next week. I'm going to have a busy few weeks, and much of next weekend will be occupied with the birthday celebration of my dear old father. But there should be an episode out in two weeks, and maybe something special in between now and then. But when you rejoin me, we shall look in some more detail at Hannibal's Siege of Saguntum. Beginning a narrative which will take us up to the Battle of Kanai before we stop and take a look around. Good times. Good times.